Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 308 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Financial Peace University and the Unstuck Group, and my guest is none other than Larry Osborne. Larry's been on the podcast a few times before. Last time he was on, here's what I changed. I think I talked about this in the interview. Uh, he mentioned that he no longer wakes with an alarm, and I'll tell you, I changed that about a year ago. Incredible. I feel better rested. And actually, even though my day might be a little bit shorter, I'd probably add another half hour to my sleep that way on on average. Uh, I'm way more productive. So uh, this time I sit down because I do this little cohort with Larry and I just took notes a year ago and uh, I went through my notes and I just quoted him to him. And then I said, explain to my listeners, this is like sitting down with Yoda. That's what a lot of my friends call Larry. And uh, he's super wise, been in ministry for decades, leadership for decades. We're going to talk about connecting with high capacity leaders and donors, why people with low EQ dominate meetings, and why everything you hate about a child, you love about a leader. I mean, stuff like that. That's just just great. Anyway, hey, you know what? Uh, Christmas holidays are coming up. And here's the reality. Okay, a lot of people who go to your church or show up at work next year, you know what they're going to do? They're going to come back with a mountain of debt. One of my favorite things to watch is if you follow Dave Ramsey or any of his team on social media, you see these debt-free posts where people have paid, I can't believe it, it's like ridiculous amounts of debt off in months. Sometimes it's like $80,000 in 10 months. And I mean, these people are not high-income earners. They just double down. They follow the principles that Dave teaches in Financial Peace University, and they get debt free. Well, what if you helped a whole lot of people do that? So Dave Ramsey has one of the top podcasts in the world these days, and guess what he does? He just helps people get out of debt. Well, what if you got the people that you lead, your church, your organization, out of that by running Financial Peace University? Financial Peace University has helped nearly 6 million people take control of their money, pay off debts, and build wealth. They're looking for leaders like you to help lead a class. Here's the thing. You don't have to be a financial expert. You don't even need to be debt-free, okay? Because sometimes, you know what happens with leaders? It's like, well, you know, I still got a little bit of stuff I got to take care of. Nope, no big deal. You don't even have to take the class before leading it. In fact, 40% of group leaders lead a class while taking it for the first time. That's a little... uh, surprise about a lot of us who teach. You know, it's like, well, best way to learn materials to teach it. Plus a dedicated advisor will walk you through every step of leading class and they'll give you everything you need for free. So if you're looking for a way to serve others, here's what you do. Get your phone out, text give hope, just give hope one word to 33789. So that's give hope, all one word to 33789 and help people get debt free, maybe even yourself in 2020. Well, a couple of years ago, my good friend Tony Morgan of the Unstuck Group started releasing this really cool quarterly report on church trends. Um, I do an annual post on that. It'll come out in January. But Tony's got like data, okay? It's amazing. So it's called the Unstuck Church Report. They've done an incredible job of helping churches determine if they have the right staff size, what a healthy percentage of volunteers they need. Like, okay, well, how many adults to how many volunteers, right? There's a ratio for that and how to improve small group engagement. Or 
If you ever wonder if your church has a front door or back door problem, the report can tell you. They've helped churches determine all of this. So if you want to see their data, it's free. Check it out at theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. The report shares more than 20 metrics, benchmarks, and trends that Tony sees impacting church health. The data can help you make informed decisions on the next steps for health and grow in your ministries. It's free. And you can get that at theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. Well, guys, before we jump into the conversation with Larry, which I'm so excited to do, a couple of in-house matters I want to bring you up on. You got a couple more days to get in on the grand prize of the 10 million downloads giveaway. We are at 10 million downloads and counting on this podcast. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to fly five of you into Nashville, and I'm going to spend an entire day in person on leadership development with that group. It's going to be amazing. We'll take care of everything. All expenses paid. We will treat you well. To get in on that, just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com forward slash 10 million. That's number one, number zero million. Leadlikeneverbefore.com slash 10 million. There's already hundreds of you who have entered, but it's not too late. So get in on that. And a couple days left to jump into my brand new course. First new course I've released in 18 months. It's called The High Impact Workplace. It's about how to get young leaders and actually any age high capacity leaders really engaged in your mission in a highly competitive workplace. The gig economy is going to be half the economy within seven years. That means people work for themselves. How do you attract and keep the best talent? Well, I show you how in the High Impact Workplace. So head on over to thehighimpactworkplace.com. Got a very special introductory price. We're in the closing hours. Next time it comes back, you will not get it at this price. Go to thehighimpactworkplace.com. Well, guys, uh, with all that said, let's jump into my conversation with Larry Osborne. Well, Larry, it's good to be on your turf. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm glad uh, glad to have you. Where are we? Are we in Vista? Uh, we are in Vista, California, but suburb everyone says, of San Diego. Yep. Yeah, San Diego, which is, it's just gorgeous here. We're going to get, we're together for a week, but we're going to get some rain. Yeah. Which happens how many times a year uh, in San Diego? This is the first rain. So just you guys come in and I bring rain with me. <laughs> first so. time in history. Yeah. It's going to rain yeah. in San Diego. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Larry, I've so enjoyed our friendship and your leadership over the last few years as we've gotten to know each other. One of the things that I, I find really interesting is that you have developed a, a pretty great relationship with business leaders. For example, I stayed at the Sheraton last night just when I got in. You got a friend who goes to North Point uh, or North North Point. There you uh, go again. There we go. Why don't we cut not, that out? Not the first time. We'll yeah. just have fun with it. I it can is live kind with of it. my background yeah, in my world. Yeah, so I can am live. I, are we done now? I, I, I can live with it. You can live with it. <laughs> North Coast. Tim, who owns, who owns that, and we met him last year when I was with you. How do you develop relationships with high-capacity leaders? A lot of pastors struggle with that. Honestly, even for the business leaders listening, a lot of people struggle with networking. And they get isolated or they feel intimidated by getting to know other people. How have you developed those relationships? Well, I can speak mostly to my role as a pastor. And I know where that intimidation comes from because that might not be your world. Uh, my world uh, has been in vocational ministry since I was, I think, 20, 21 years old. Yeah. So you always look at something else, and you either look down on it or you idolize it, think they don't put their pants on you one leg at a time. And what, what I found is the same thing that I did with professors who, at one point in my life, I thought, boy, that's a real different person than me. 
can I have lunch with them or whatever? Uh, I, I kind of do the same thing with business people in the early years of ministry at North Coast. I used to ask my professors if I could take them out to lunch, and I always learned a lot more at lunch than I ever learned in the classroom. Huh. Uh, just able to ask them questions, uh, finding a little more about who they are, uh, the context of the person uh, changes often the information that is presented. And so uh, early on with business people, I just started taking them out to lunch. And instead of uh, uh, going there to teach them how to read the Bible more, to pray better or whatever, I, I would always shock them or to ask them for money. Right, uh, I, right. I, I would always shock them because I would say, no, I want you to mentor me in your area of expertise. Whatever so it's not even be. teach me to be a leader of a church. It's no. like, I want to understand the no. hotel business. Yeah. See, I think what happens a lot of times is th- those of us uh, in vocational ministry is we we spend too much time in a parent-child relationship rather than peer-to-peer. Oh, wow. So, and especially, I was 28 years old when I became a, mm-hmm. a lead pastor. And so out of the insecurity of that, you even put on more airs like you're the leader or whatever. <laughs> Yet Timothy says, or is told by Paul, Treat the older men as your father. Uh, and if you got a good, healthy relationship with your father, which I'm fortunate to have, I can speak into his life. I can make a correction. I can make an encouragement. But I don't do that like I do it to my kids. I do right. it in a different way. And so I found the older, successful business people around me were more than willing to teach me uh, whatever it is I wanted to learn if I would simply take the time to ask them. And as I would go and ask them, well, why do you do this? Why don't you do this? What are some of the secrets in your field that those on the outside would never uh, know? Because uh, everything has those kind of counterintuitive insights or or actions that lead to success. Uh, What I found is is they would share those with me. uh, I would become a better leader. Yeah, uh, I would better understand the world, the people I was preaching to, was they were living in. And then on uh, on top of that, it opened the door for them to turn around and let me speak into their life. Hmm. Uh, I think you become a lot better leader when you become a broader person. Um, most businessmen and women think their pastor knows the Bible, uh, marriage counseling, and family counseling. Right. They have no idea that Jesus also could speak into when to hire, when to fire, how to do that. Uh, is this uh, the right time to make a merger? Uh, how are you marketing? Uh, I mean, a million things that we have in this secular spiritual divide uh, where there should be no secular spiritual divide can be spoken into once they realize, oh, you know something about my world. Uh, but most of them don't think you know anything about their world. Interesting. I Because um, what I did for this interview to prepare because um, you've been on a few times, is I went back on my notes from a week that we spent together, three days we spent together with some other leaders uh, last year. We're heading into those same three days this week, yeah, which I'm looking really for excited for, Larry. It's, it's great. And I get to be the student. I get to sit there and take notes, which is fun. So these are from my notes. They may or may not be 100% accurate, so you can correct as we go. Uh, but one of the things you said, if you're sitting down with a high-capacity lay leader— uh, ask them some questions. And these are from my notes last year. So question one, will you teach me, will you mentor me in what you do? Uh, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, I mean, we kind of covered that already, but is there anything else you want to say? Like, does, well, that, does yeah, that feel some awkward in the moment? Of, yeah, yeah, some examples of that, because I don't mm-hmm. literally say, teach me what you do. Obviously, right, right. you're jotting down the notes, but the conversation to this day would go the same as it went in the early years when I was a much younger man. 
Uh, I would say, you know, I don't understand anything about real estate. Right. Uh, what are the secrets of being successful in, in real estate? So maybe I'm talking to an agent. Uh, what are the things that customers don't understand? Uh, what are the things that make a successful agent different than an uh, agent who uh, uh, goes and gets a license, has all kinds of dreams, but never is able to close a deal? Right. Uh, who are the customers you like to work with best? Who are the ones you like to work with least? Uh, switch it over to another area of real estate. Uh, I remember going out with some guys that were very good at commercial real estate and asking them, well, why do you walk away from a deal? Uh, being shocked that there's a sense of pay to play, uh, hmm. that if they're interested in a piece of property, they can spend five to ten to $15,000 uh, doing front-end research or putting it into escrow and then uh, doing some other things, and, and then they'll walk away from that. Well, in my experience, only knowing vocational ministry, uh, I would think, wow, we spent 15000 We better keep going forward on that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You don't ever walk away. And they they taught me the principle of walking into any deal I'm ever going to do on anything with a, uh, a kind of loss limit ahead of time. I'm willing to spend, and sometimes on, say, a campus or a major expenditure, it can be a pretty high number. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I'm willing to spend that and still walk away. Because if not, you end up putting good money after bad. Uh, they taught me the principle, if you chase a deal hard enough, it will catch you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that not only speaks to real estate. Yeah. That, that, that speaks to uh, a, a person you want on your staff so badly that you chase them hard enough, you actually catch them only to rue the day. I mean, there are so many other things. And I'm just picking real estate here. Oh, that's do, amazing. I could do it with a banker. I could do it with someone who owned a restaurant is where I learned the importance of soft openings. When we oh, we okay. do a campus, uh, we don't have grand openings where you have this massive number followed by discouragement as it's cut in half. Uh, okay, I want to I want to unpack some of that because okay. there's just too much there's too much there just to keep going. So let's go back to if you want if you want to deal hard enough uh, or you pursue it hard enough it'll catch you. Does that mean if you just never give up you're going to get the deal or you're going to get the staff person or what does that mean? Well, no, it will catch you, not it you will, will catch. Oh, it. so what okay. does that mean? Well, that means that you fall in love with something and, and pretty ah. soon you you start forgetting. Uh, and uh, all of the negative little signs and yellow lights and red lights that are coming up because you've committed yourself to it. You fall in love. You fall in love in, with a deal. With a bad in, relationship. In, in, okay. real, in real estate, they taught me the principle that if you chase a deal hard enough, you will catch it. They taught me the principle there's always a new train coming down the track. Yeah. But when you miss the one you wanted to be on, you don't really tend to believe that. Uh, and then once again, their wisdom in their field always has applications in much broader fields. Uh, so, uh, hey, there's always another train coming down the track when we uh, are looking at a campus, right. when we're looking at a staff member, when when we missed an opportunity, ministry opportunity for something. It's relax. There'll be another train coming down the track. <laughs> uh, I do not remember learning any of that in my seminary. Oh, classes. no, no. I mean, we're eight, nine minutes into this yeah. conversation, and already I imagine people are taking notes. This is good. Okay, so that's what that means. And talk about soft openings from the restaurant industry, because yeah, well, that is the case, right? Yeah, like, in, in, a, in a restaurant, and, and we're, we're talking a standalone nice restaurant. We're not mm, talking a franchise right. where they've got a the whole drill yeah. all figured out. Uh, but a, a restaurant will have a soft opening in which they invite people they know, and then they they stress the staff. They they figure out what parts of the menu work, what parts don't work. Uh, they stress the kitchen, and so that when they open, 
it's ready to open and it's a good experience. Uh, anytime you open a new campus, that first day, uh, all the people who've been at your church a long time, uh, they don't know where the bathrooms are anymore. Right. Uh, congestion is worse. Uh, if you're a speaker, you feel a little awkward because it's a different environment. Uh, basically, you're putting your worst foot forward. Right. And yet you probably have balloons. Uh, you you sent out, uh, uh, you know, promoted it on Facebook or whatever it would be, and you get this large crowd who are going to come and have a bad experience because it's going to be overly congested and all kinds of little things are going to go wrong. So what you naturally do, and most churches do, is we do a run-through. Okay. Right. Well, a run-through is not a soft opening because mm. a run-through just goes through all the elements of the service. Uh, it, it, it it doesn't stress anything. Right. Okay. You don't know whether your kid's right. check-in is going to work, whether your parking's going to work. Totally. Yeah. So like when we moved into our mothership campus here, if you want to call our Vista campus at all of our other campus, you know, broadcast that the others right. go to, um, we told people don't invite your friends uh, for the first couple of weeks. Hmm. If they bug you and want to come, sure, let them come. But what we want is we don't want a big bump followed by a massive drop. Uh, we want a slow growth, and that's exactly what we had. Because if somebody comes on a grand opening uh, and it's a bad experience, they they say, oh, I went there, man. The wait, wait staff was terrible. The food was cold. Right. Well, it's the same with your children's ministry, youth ministry, your sermon, your worship. So it's from restaurant folks that I learned the power of a soft opening, which, frankly, we use with all of our campuses. We always just do a soft opening. Uh, those of you who are already committed, why don't you come, try it out. Let's see what works, what doesn't. And uh, actually, in most cases, we never even have a grand opening because word of mouth just builds it anyway. But right. if it didn't, yeah, then I'd have a grand, a grand opening, opening month later, two months later. Okay, here's a bizarre question that almost gets you into immediate trouble in church world, uh, <laughs> but I love it. If I want to make a million dollars, this is what you would ask a high-capacity business leader. If I want to make a million dollars, what would I do? Yeah. Why do you ask that question, and what kind of response have you got? <laughs> well, I asked that uh, early on when I realized I was uh, not going to make a, a, a financial killing uh, in vocational ministry. <laughs> right. uh, I probably better find a, a side hustle uh, if I uh, want to do well or set myself up for retirement, and uh, why not reach for the moon? Yeah, and so, you are in San Diego. I yeah. mean, houses aren't real cheap here. <laughs> yeah, that's the same uh -huh. thing. So I just took out some wealthy people and just said— Basically, my question was, how do you get rich? But I, I, I framed it in, what's it take to become a millionaire? Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I learned compounding. Uh, I learned the power, like real estate, for instance, the power of that. Uh, uh, I learned that a dollar saved is much greater than a dollar earned. Because mm. if you earned a dollar, what you've got left with afterward is taxes taken out and, and uh, hopefully uh, giving to God first, all kinds of different mm -hmm. things. Well, I, I tended to view life as more the the more I could make, the better I'd be, instead right. of having an absolute parallel track, which said, uh, how do a little bit of savings compound over a long period of time? Hmm. Um, it's one reason my wife and I drove pretty much nothing but hand-me-down cars for a long period of time yeah. while we were adding zeros to our bank account uh, instead of impressing our friends with our, our wheels. Not to go totally uh, sidebar on this, but one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is the succession crisis. And that that's true, especially in ministry where you whole, have a whole bunch of, well, Gen X is barely coming into that. But, you know, I handed our church off four years ago, five years ago, 
And uh, you see a lot of people hanging on to 65 or 70 and you realize, oh, the reason is because they need to work. They've lost the oh. passion, but they need to work. Um, but that you're not tight. Like if you guys know Larry, Larry's about as unassuming as it gets. And I mean, here you are in a golf shirt. You know, you're not exact. You don't have an entourage, a posse with you. Like you're about as as humble as it gets, Larry, which I love about you. But um, that could be a really good principle for leaders listening who, you know, kind of realize, wow, I'm going to have to work till I'm 82 to actually afford any kind of retirement. Yeah, that. Uh, for me, I had some mentors around me. I tend to think that way a little bit, so you mm. that opens the door. But uh, it didn't take me very long as a young pastor to realize there were people who ministered into old age because they had an anointing, a giftedness, and a power that could continue. Right. Uh, and then there were others that were hanging on, wanting to be gone, and their ministry was gone <laughs> uh, simply because they hadn't prepared for the future. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I, I married my my wife comes from an ethnic background, uh, which has a little more tendency to focus there. Uh, uh, she's an accountant, so there were a bunch of things that kind of the perfect storm came together mm. for me to think early on. Uh, one example is uh, at 28 years old, I took a huge cut in pay from my youth ministry job to come to this church plant. Uh, I found out they had no retirement. Which, which probably isn't saying much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's got to be yeah. bad. But it was, yeah, it was like, yeah. oh, my gosh. Yeah. But then I realized they had no retirement. And even at 28, uh, because of people having taught me these things and these principles I'm talking about, I'd learned, okay, you do find a way to live whatever it is you're getting. You know, you mm. find a way to live. So let's take another 10% out uh, and put it in a retirement fund. Wow. Uh, because I just was so committed that I did not want to hang on to ministry for financial reasons. Yes, I, I could but not agree more. There's a flip side, though. I want to tell you, being over 60, the moment you hit 60, everybody's uh, lumping everybody together saying, well, when are you going to get out? <laughs> and I'm going, are you kidding me? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not so sure gifts have disappeared. Now, our church needs to stay young. A couple years ago, we turned the lead pastor role over yeah. to Chris Brown instead of me, but I'm still preaching, still involved in our uh, strategic leadership team. Uh, and and for me to say I've stepped out would be to say anybody that's not the lead pastor on your team has stepped out. Right. So uh, you sometimes maybe need a new voice, or new energy, or somebody's been around so long. How long are you going to make them wait in the wings Yeah. Uh, that, before their name is etched first on the glass? <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean everybody ought to leave, but nobody ought to stay for money. And if you are, it's because you planned poorly. What are some of the, uh, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, what are some of the moves that you made over the last three or four decades financially that help you set up to the point where you're like, okay, money's not an issue. I'm called to preach. I'm called to still use my ministry in this direction, but I'm not doing it to collect a paycheck. Yeah, well, anybody under 30 that's listening to this, yeah. simply take 10% of whatever it is you earn and set it aside. It's that simple. Like, <laughs> really, I mean, it's, Solomon says, you know, little yeah. by little, uh, great wealth comes. And uh, all the charts show if you start 10, 15 years later, uh, you've got a massive amount more um, uh, to put aside. So that was the first part is yeah. from the very beginning, little by little over a long period of time. Uh, the second thing was to live below our means. Mm. And uh, what happens most people is they live to their peers. They don't ah. think they're living above their means. They're living to their peers. Right. So, so my buddy has a new car. My buddy has a new car and he's a lawyer. My buddy mm. has a new car and he's a lead pastor. My buddy has a 
this and they're a school teacher. But what we forget is almost everybody around us is living above their means. Right. Right? Yeah. So if I'm going to live at my means, I'm going to probably live one step below my peers. And if I'm going to live below my means, because in the house of the wise are stores of oil and grain, hmm. a balanced budget is a fool's budget, not a wise budget. Oh, wow. In the house of the fool devours all he has is what Solomon says. And so if I'm going to live below my means, that means I'm not going to be driving the same car my peers drive. Right. I'm not going to be taking the same vacation they take. I'm not going to wear the same clothes they wear. Three of the biggest killers that come to my mind, I'm not going to send my kids to the same school, uh, college mm. maybe they do, forget. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to put on the same wedding uh, mm-hmm. that they all did. And I'm probably not going to buy the same gifts because those are three areas where we pretend. The cupboard is bare, but we pretend it's not. And you do that over a long period of time, and somewhere around your late 40s, early 50s, you look around and you go, man, I am so far ahead of my peers. And it doesn't mean because you earned a huge salary. No. Uh, it, it means because you followed the biblical advice of one of the wisest men who ever lived and absolutely the wisest of his day, Solomon. No, it's it's incredible. You know, I started late. I started at 30 because I spent all of my 20s in school. So, you know, first real paycheck happened at, I think, 30 or 31. So I feel like we're a decade behind. But my wife and I just met with our investment advisor, and we started saving years ago. And it's just at that point where the returns become disproportionate to the investment. Yep. And we looked at that. And, you know, we're not like mega wealthy or whatever, but like, you know, money doesn't have to be the worry it could have been if we hadn't planned. And, but you don't see that for decades. No. And, and what I believe is if you start early, here's the real beauty of it. Uh, financial freedom is a freedom from worry. It's not the amount of money you have. Mm. It's the ability to handle the predictable crisis of life. They're going to happen. <laughs> Something's going to break. Yeah. Like my fridge is malfunctioning. Yeah, and, it's only and five years old. major medical issues are so, going to yeah. happen yeah. And, and significant things. Well, if you've got some margin, that's exactly what you can deal with. But the other part of it is a lot of us make the mistake as there does become a little financial security or your, your career goes up or even in ministry, the church gets a little larger, the salary mm. gets a little better. We uh, upscale our lifestyle. Yeah. And what yeah. my wife and I uh, determined to do was upscale our giving and upscale mm. our savings. Mm. That uh, drive the same kind of cars now as 15 you know, years ago, uh, live in the same house for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, well, as those things compound, that means I can be uh, much more generous towards the kingdom than I was and still out of the leftovers even save more than I originally say, but it all starts with that first step. It's kind of, is it, is it a take on We that? just turned into Ramsey. How did yeah, that Yeah, I know. How did, how did that, <laughs> was, is, is it a little bit like, uh, you know, that John Wesley quote? Uh, Absolutely. Give all you can, save all you can, make all you can. Yeah. I think mm. it was make all you can, give all you can, save all you can was the order yeah. of it. Yeah. I could be wrong, but uh, yeah, I've lived on that. I mean, even if I speak somewhere, the honorarium could be this or that. Then I go, well, how about that? Mm-hmm. You know, because that gives me, it's its not that I'm being selfish. It's not that I'm being greedy. We get a little false guilt in vocational ministry sometimes, yeah. you know, kind of a poverty gospel. Yeah. Uh, well, if it could be this or that, why not give me that? And now I have that much more uh, to be generous to the kingdom with uh, and uh, that much more to set aside so I'm not dependent uh, uh, upon other people in, in old age or 
crisis that happens. Right. And then you have, you have something to give. And, you know, I was talking about that with the Uber driver who brought me here this morning and uh, he was just starting a new business. And I just said, you know, one of the problems we have in the church is there's a poverty mentality and most people are actually underpaid. If you really look at it, most people are underpaid. But what makes the news is that 0.3% that are living a crazy lavish lifestyle that's just like bananas. But the truth is probably like, wouldn't it be great if the vast majority of leaders had that kind of security and they weren't arguing with their spouse? Because I remember those early days of ministry. I started at $19,000 a year plus a house. And I mean, you're counting every penny Mm -hmm. in those days. And I mean, like, wow, should we buy the generic can of mandarins or are we allowed to have the brand name yeah. or counting your trips into town and uh it would be it would be good if we lift even below those means and yeah and, and had some more there's a well-known book called the millionaire next door and, oh yeah uh, one of the fun things in that book was uh, essentially uh, the one you think is a millionaire uh, really usually isn't right <laughs> they don't have much set aside and the um, millionaire next door doesn't look like one or live like one Mm. That's that's why they are one. Right, right. Okay, well, that's a lot about money. A um, couple of other questions. Um, why do you walk away from a deal and what's a good deal? Mm-hmm. Like, And then, then the third one is when do you walk into a deal? So that's more about negotiating and wisdom and being able to spot opportunities. Yeah, it's, it's just another example of the things I learned with business people asking those questions. The bigger overarching principle is, uh, uh, I, I think it's, what is it, uh, I think sticky leaders also mm. innovation serial secret is is uh, you start with an exit plan, not an implementation strategy. Mm. Uh, that's one of the things I learned again outside uh, people who had success uh, that if you don't have an exit strategy spelled out before you start your implementation, and then when it's time to bail out, you'll keep keep pushing a little bit more until it's too late to bail out. So what happens? Do you uh, like you're saying, you're just committed to a sinking ship. Like you're the last. Like how? What, what, well, people yeah. will be because we call yeah. it faith. <laughs> uh, see, people people tell me I, I hear this all the time. Well, if you don't have some area of risk, that if God doesn't deliver you, things won't be okay. You're not living by faith. And I go, no, you're living by credulity and presumption. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because if the Lord specifically told you to do something, then that's living by faith. Right. The Bible doesn't value risk. It values obedience. Hmm. And in our culture, we have turned risk into faith. It is no risk when God tells you specifically to take your son up to the mountain and are you willing to sacrifice him? Right. Because he's shown you who he is. He's done all these things all along. Uh, shoot, the kid was born after you were as good as dead. You <laughs> yeah, know, that's what the yeah. Bible says. So the risk would be disobedience. But we go out on limbs and uh, we invest in uh, trying to grow too quick. We invest in buildings and property and all this. And we say, hey, we're taking a step of faith. And I always ask leaders the same thing. When did God tell you to do this? Yeah. Well, he didn't tell me, but he, uh, I go, when did God tell you to do this? Well, he didn't. Well, then he didn't tell you, right? Yeah. Mm. So now what you're doing is taking a calculated risk. And Jesus said, count the cost. Yeah. Right? Uh, the, there, there is uh, no value on, uh, I think of Jim Collins, great books, but he, uh, people are uh, always asking about his uh, big, hairy, audacious goals. Right. Right? And they'll B-hag. come to me and say, what's your BHAG, your big, hairy, mm. audacious goal? 
And uh, the thing is, nobody was successful because they had a BHAG. <laughs> they were successful because they had a big, hairy, audacious goal and the resources and skill set to reach that goal. Ah. If a big, hairy, audacious goal and taking a wild risk that Jesus didn't call you specifically to would be the key to success, you would be talking to a former NBA player right now. Okay? <laughs> but it didn't matter how big my dream was, how much I practiced, and, and whatever, there was a level at which I could not play at the next level. Yeah. I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the skill set. I, you know, that's, it, it's done. And so what, what I learned uh, early on was figure out at what point the plane is going down Hmm. And you better have that exact altitude written down ahead of time. Otherwise, you're going to keep trying to pull the nose up. And when you finally realize it's too late and pull the ripcord, it's over. It's too late. And that wow. happens over and over in ministry. So to get real practical, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're chasing a campus for a new campus, a facility. We hmm. will literally have a number. We'll say we'll spend up to X to see if this deal will work. Got it. But once you've done X, you always go, man, I've already blown X. I might as well throw Y into it. Yeah. Uh, we will start a ministry and say, if it goes below this number, we will pull the plug. Right. Okay. So I, some of it is strategic quitting yes, and walking away. That's what an exit strategy is. Yeah. I'm known for being a risk taker uh -huh. and somewhat innovative. Uh, but the iron is nobody realizes how much of a non-risk taker I am in the sense that I always have an exit strategy. Well, you see, and I was going to go there because, I mean, we're at North Coast Church, and anybody who's ever been there um, will know, like, you're not exactly sitting in a cardboard box. I mean, you've got how many buildings on this campus? You've oh, got, I, I don't know, lots, a dozen, maybe more, yeah. huge, church of 11,000-ish. 13, 13,000. Yeah. Uh, not that we're counting. And how, No, not that you're counting. How many locations? How many locations now, Larry? Uh, we only count our local locations, yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's seven, uh, seven. campuses. So here. obviously, you have, you have millions, if not hundreds of millions in real estate. You've got buildings that, and you're using it to reach a lot of people. But most people would look at that from the outside and go, well, that's risky. But so explain how that wasn't stupidity or audaciousness, how that was, you know, how you calculated through all that. Well, I'll just give the, the real life example of how, how we did things. We, yeah. we were in uh, warehouses in the barrio for 18 years, okay? <laughs> living Fair below enough. our means. Fair and enough. then we found out what it would cost if you had your own property. And we began to set that amount of money aside every single month. Mm. So to get where most of us live, because few people have the size of church that we ended up, for whatever reasons, having. But I, yeah. I just go back to church planners. I always tell them, your first couple of years, you're in subsidized housing. I hope you realize that. <laughs> uh, when you're in a school or whatever, as, as yeah. much as a stretch it is, it's not the same price it would cost you to have a, a warehouse you've turned into a church or a piece of property you build a church on. Yeah. Otherwise, you would have done it. So I tell them, figure out exactly what that would cost you hmm. and start at year two or three setting aside that money. Because if you don't, then when you suddenly get large enough that, oh, uh, we, we need to build or we need to move to a warehouse or God has opened up the door, you end up taking a machete to your ministry and your staff because you've been living fat based on your mm. subsidized housing. Does mm. that make sense what it I'm saying? It makes 100% sense. And, yeah. and so, candidly, that's what we did. We had one little warehouse of 15,000 square feet. Uh, we ended up with, I don't know, 
a huge uh, complex uh, in those warehouses and buying others just to get the parking. But we never had a fundraiser hmm. uh, for any of them besides the first one. So you just set the money aside. We, we know what it would cost us to buy another 10,000 square foot building, X per month. Yeah. So we would start setting that aside, and it, it proved two things. It gave us the cash to do the tenant improvements. Yeah. It also showed to a bank if we needed to borrow or the person who owned the building was about to lease it to us, it showed we had the cash flow. Right. Uh, it wasn't a dream. Uh, I, I think faith becomes a huge excuse often for laziness and irresponsibility. Hmm. Uh, and then we scream to our people to rescue us. <laughs> and, and it's like, yes. well, God never sent you there. Yeah. So, uh, well, very much this exit strategy mm-hmm. uh, and living below your means, those two things will help you sleep a lot better. Yeah. And um, it sounds to me, and I don't want to oversimplify it because there's a lot of lessons there, but it's a little bit like just delayed gratification. And we live oh, in a culture like- Totally. Yeah. It's like, you know, oh, well, now your 50s look pretty good or your 60s look pretty good. But it's like, yeah, that's because we lived with less in our 30s. And all of our friends had nicer houses and nicer cars and mm-hmm. the latest this and the latest that. And the same with the church, right? Living in that um, warehouse and just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I think, you know, again, we're talking Dave Ramsey here, but (laughs) a lot of it is we don't live in that culture. Another great question, um, that you would ask a high capacity leader. And I think, I think this is great. I'm going to have to do this on, on the podcast. What are five things nobody knows that are a secret to your success? That's a great question. Yeah. Well, you know, yes. And you can go three to five, you know, however, but, uh, Everything has uh, counterintuitive wisdom that hmm. is learned uh, late. Okay, yeah. that's why rookies don't tend to perform as well as veterans. Hmm. Uh, and what I love to do is is ask people what are the things no one knows uh, when they look at it. You know, you've you've never played golf before. It's a longer hole. I guess I need to swing harder. Well, not if you play golf. Right. You understand that's just going to make the ball go into the weeds. Uh-huh. Uh, I, one of the fun ones for me is uh, I, I educationally <clears throat> um, went through kind of a weird uh, program that, that meant uh, I was not taught uh, uh, English like you normally have oh, okay. in school. I had no classes, verb, noun, nothing like that. I was a, a, a very good reader young. Hmm. I taught myself to read at a very young age. And, and because of that, I got put in a special program that was supposed to help you think at a high level, but never taught you the basics. Ah, uh, I okay? gotcha. And so I can't spell my way out of a paper bag. <laughs> if there weren't squiggly lines, I would have never written anything. Uh, I, I never liked writing or whatever, but I felt like, hmm, I have something to say to a broader audience I'd like to write. So here's what I did. Uh, I, I stepped back and thought, okay, there seems to be three kinds of writers. Uh, there's a uh, writing that I had to do in school, which was not about how well I communicate, but how deeply I researched. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the bigger the vocabulary, the more impressive the grade. <laughs> there was business writing, which was all about cover your tail so that uh, you don't get in trouble. And then there were copywriters and direct mail writers, uh, the only people in the world that eat or do not eat based on whether people respond to what they wrote. Yeah, right. true about copywriters. So. Uh-huh. What we had is we had a successful copywriter in our church. And so I took him out to lunch numerous times, and he thought I was going to ask him for money or, or ask him to be part of some discipleship group or whatever. And he was shocked when I said, 
hey, would you teach me what are the counterintuitive things that have made you such a successful copywriter? Because if people don't respond to what you write, you don't eat. Oh, and, wow. And he leaned back, shocked that a pastor would ask that. And with great joy and delight, as they always do, yeah. he began to lay out a series of things uh, that were so counter to what I'd been taught. Uh, and so if you read uh, any of my books, yep. you will find uh, what Jim Vitti taught me all the way through those books. For instance, uh, you look at any of my books, you'll find a lot of white space. Yes. Okay, that white space is because that uh, increases retention and uh, allows people to continue to read longer than a longer paragraph would. Really? So I, I fight with my publishers on that all the time. I'm like, paragraph should not be half the page. Oh, I'm always shortening things, and I, that's a battle I've been able to win. Wow. Uh, uh, ending with something that pulls you into the next chapter, uh, using colloquialisms and uh, conjunctions. Yes. All, all kinds of Can't things. Can't versus cannot. Absolutely. All these things I was told not to do. Uh, except for by the guy who made a living getting people to to respond. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write, I want people to to live differently because they read it, uh, not to think I'm smart or oh. whatever it would be. He also he said, you you write down a level. We, we've all been trained to impress people with our vocabulary. Right. And uh, his thing is, Larry, they ought to think you were a C student, you know? Uh, not a C minus. Right, but, but a C student, right. But... Uh, that will cause people to respond. It should be able to be read by a good reader uh, on a cross-country flight. Uh, longer is better than shorter. Uh, in other words, 500 words will not have as much impact as 750 words. Interesting. Now, that doesn't continue forever, but I, I won't bore you by going on. Oh, no, listen, this could be a whole the, episode. All of these things uh, simply came because I took a copy editor out, yeah. a, a writer out, and said— uh, Tell me what no one knows. And he just laughed. And he said, oh, everybody thinks. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. So much of it is counterintuitive. I've, so one of my side hobbies is I study copywriting. And uh, one of my favorites is Ramit Sethi, who uh, wrote, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And uh, he's one of the best copywriters, I think, out there. It's just brilliant. Did he say anything about getting into people's head? Uh, well, he said write to real people. Okay. Okay. So whenever I write a book... Mm -hmm. or uh, uh, an article, I always have uh, two or three little people on my desk. Uh, so I, I think like when I wrote Accidental Pharisee, I had three real people in front of me. Right. Uh, when I would do a Thriving in Babylon. So the more uh, spiritual formation books, I put real people. And usually I'm one of them too, because you're usually mm -hmm. writing to your past and your lessons. Right. When I wrote Sticky Teams, uh, I uh, and some of my leadership books, I would have real people. So I wasn't just writing to my tribe. I would be able to hear the yeah, but from some of the other tribes that I have the privilege. Right. Because that's what a good communicator does. A good communicator can hear the yeah, buts. Right. Okay. Yeah. And he taught me how to hear the yeah, buts because as a copywriter, that's what he's always having to bust through. Yeah, but I'm not sure I have the money. Yeah, but I'm not sure that's actually going to work in the real world. Yeah, but, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, and, and instead of being defensive, because in a real conversation, you're aware of those things. Right. But if you're writing conceptually, you're not. You're just focused on the concept. Is this true? Is it articulate? Yeah. But there's a third question. Is it persuasive? Mm. Fascinating. I've got to get into a couple of episodes at some point just about copywriting. So I, I just, I, 
I love that stuff. And it is so counterintuitive. Great question. Okay, I want to do Larry quotes. So oh, <laughs> again, no. in the three days, <laughs> in the three days that we spent together by the beach, uh, I just wrote these random things down and it is the random hour. These are not related to each other, but it uh, they're just stuff that I remember a year later. Uh, all the traits you love in a leader, you hate in a child. <laughs> that is a great line. That yeah. is a great line. Well, I'm always trying to tell parents, and my, my dad actually uh-huh. taught me this principle. Uh, uh, he was in education. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, what what happens is when, when kids are young, we want a compliant child. Yes. Uh, very obedient. In fact, we say that, oh, they were so good, which basically means they didn't make much noise <laughs> or they were very respectful in their conversation, which is fine. Uh, but as I used to tell some of my friends with compliant kids, because let's just say all of mine weren't, uh, <laughs> uh, someday your kid is going to work for my kid. And it's true. Wow. <laughs> uh, that, uh, in fact, our, our our toughest kid, by the grace of God, none of them went through a uh, spiritual rebellion. So mm. I'm just a very fortunate, blessed man in that sense. But uh, one of them, if you look up strong-willed child uh, or Google it, his picture will come up first. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, right next to my kids. Uh, uh-huh. And, and yeah. he always had a reason why we were wrong, uh, an argument of why it would be better. and mm-hmm. all. Well, that's what set him up to be the C-suite officer he is today in a company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he, he saw what others don't see. And unfortunately, it was my oldest son. And because of that, you make more mistakes on the first one. <laughs> Uh, until my wife really helped me to see it, I kept trying to break what I thought was his will, but mm. in reality was his spirit. Oh, yeah. Uh, because those things that were uh, not conventional, uh, that that pushback on why I don't need to go to bed right now. Mm. Uh, because the truth of the matter is, he didn't need as much sleep as every kid did. Sure. Okay? But I just, I had this recipe book and that is a, you know, we got taught that. So our kids are 27 and 23, and uh, both of them in different ways. They're very different. Could be strong-willed kids. So we got that book, The Strong-Willed Child, back in the day, the oh, whole yeah, deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that where um, Break Their Will, Not Their Spirit came from? Because that was such an— I got that advice, too, when I was a young dad, and I thought that was such an incredible—because uh, I'm an Enneagram 8. I can easily break your spirit. I know exactly how to do it. I can do it in 30 seconds flat. It's horrible. That's the worst part of my personality. But to break a will, like, I, that that can be good. My will needs to be broken sometimes. Like, I need, mm-hmm. I need that kind of correction. Was that a helpful distinction for you as a dad? Yeah, and I'm not sure where that that came from, uh, whether I read it, heard it, or, or whatever. But in yeah. the real world, it more came from my wife. See, the mm. problem was I was, a period of my life, I was spanked daily. Oh. Not because I had abusive parents, but because I deserved it. I mean, absolutely, <laughs> for real. Yeah. Okay, I, all, incredible parents. Uh, my wife was spanked once in her life by mistake. Wow. And so what we tend to do often with our children is— uh, we, we see the worst side of us and want to make sure, we forget we survived it. We want to make mm. sure they don't go through it. Mm-hmm. So I was basically uh, trying to ensure that my son didn't have any of the hardships I had. Well, he's, everybody's going to have them. Yeah. And I was overreacting. Yeah. Yeah, and there too. came a time and place where uh, um, I really became aware that, no, Nancy is right and I am wrong. Mm. And uh, I need to submit to her wisdom. As the two become one, it's not a battle to see which one, right? <laughs> the two yes. become a new one. And the yes. new one, she was she was the one who 
I needed to listen to about about how to discipline and what was worth a battle and what wasn't. Yeah. And most of the things I thought were battle was I'm, I'm teaching you to be respectful. Mm. But all I was doing was teaching you to lose your, your spirit. Wow. Yeah. That's good stuff. Okay. And so you may have some leaders on your hands. Just so you know, I think I drove my mother crazy. <laughs> There's truth to that. Uh, again, not necessarily associated, just random Larry quotes. Small teams are better teams. Families' systems kick in anytime when you have over seven people around the table, and then angry and stubborn people rule the meeting. Okay, I think what you did, you must have... Uh, did I put 12 together? Entry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just bit. my notes, man. Yeah, but, but small teams are better teams. So there's this idea because what what the, one of the reasons I wrote that down is whenever I was composing a board, like our elder board or board of directors or whatever, I always thought the ideal number was three to seven. You get three really smart people around the table. Uh, but, and and you, so just talk about that. Family systems kick in yeah, when I you would, get over seven I people. I would agree that when it comes to creativity, creativity yeah. is usually done best one to three. You look all around mm. the world, you look in ministry settings, uh, great ideas are usually done in a team of one to three, seldom, frankly, a one. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Uh, there's a leader of the one to three, but that's over and over and over. You see, so that. creativity one to three, one to three, great critique, uh, four to seven. Wow. Okay. Okay. But once you get seven people, what happens is because groups have a, a, a tendency or a bias towards uh, getting along. Uh, that the angry or the stubborn person rules any group over seven. That's kind of probably what you were mm-hmm. jotting down, and mm-hmm. you see it over and over in a committee, in a board, even in a, a, a staff that's too large. If you have an outspoken, angry, or stubborn person, the group just tables everything, trying to figure out maybe we can <laughs> yes. get push this through later. Uh, and so uh, that that's a problem. So when I find, and when I find when you go beyond 7, 10, 11, 12, that's where family system comes in. I remember mm-hmm. we had a senior staff that got all the way to 16. Oh, wow. And as they sat around the room, everybody sat in the same seat, one person was the class clown. One was the pushback person. Four other people always nodded, though they might say something different in the hallway. Uh, and I, I felt like, why the heck are we having this meeting? You know, uh-huh. I, it's, it's predetermined. So what we did at that point is we cut that 16 into three smaller teams, and suddenly everybody was much more verbal. Because also uh-huh. around five to seven people, the introvert has no, uh, there, there's no space for them to speak. Right. Especially the one who thinks best on their way home from the meeting. Correct. Uh, and so my goal when I was leading these things was always to say, how do we structure it so people can say truth? Because the larger we got, the more they spoke the truth in the hallway, not in the meeting. Uh, and I needed to hear it. So what could I do to create an environment in which I would hear somebody push back? Just hmm. think about it. It, it. When we had 12, 11, 16 in a staff meeting, it took some pretty low EQ if you weren't the designated pushback guy or gal right. to speak up and say, that's a dumb idea. But in room of four, they will, or their body language will tell you. So that's another quote. Uh, anyone with high EQ will not push back in a large group setting. Only low EQ people push back in a large setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, just all you got to do is look back. Again, there will be in a family system, somebody uh-huh. appoints themselves as a crumb mungeon. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and the group accepts that and, and leans on that. But but other people, they they just go, man, I don't know. I don't want to think that. If a Myers-Briggs feeler or whatever, they'll just think this might be misinterpreted. So you've got to create environments 
that are small enough for truth-telling. Hmm. Okay. Judge the fruit, not the watering uh, schedule. That's one of my favorites. It is. Yeah, I've heard yeah. you talk about it a few times. Oh, it's a good I, one. Yeah, we, we, we tend to spend all of our life judging people's watering schedule instead of the fruit. Yeah. Uh, we do it medically. We look at somebody and say, hey, you ought to lose some weight or, oh, man, you're looking really good. Uh, but you know what? That heavy person can have uh, low cholesterol, uh, low blood pressure, whatever. And that person who's eating the Mediterranean diet, walking five miles a day, you know, they're, uh, they're on, uh, on, on drugs because their cholesterol is so high or <laughs> yeah, their blood yeah, pressure, yeah. right? Yeah, true. Uh, and, and, and the same, even moving to the spiritual realm. Uh, we act as if the watering schedule of being a self-feeding, read the Bible every day, journaling, uh, as if that recipe makes you spiritual. Well, you right. do all those things to become obedient. Mm. Uh, uh, other versions of it, your marriage. Uh, my wife and I had a great marriage till we went to the marriage conference and found we were doing everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and same with our kids. I, I read a book on how to raise kids, you know, any of the Christian books, and Oh my gosh, we didn't do anything right. I think we had two family vacations. Uh, two of my <laughs> kids were in sports at a high level. So for six years, we'd have one meal together, usually a quesadilla because it was quick. Right. Uh, we tried family devotions. That didn't work. Nobody <laughs> wanted to have family devotions with a pastor. You know, well, yeah, the yeah, Greek, yeah. The Greek word here is. <laughs> so, so our recipe was horrific, mm. but our kids' walk with the Lord was wonderful. So you got to judge the fruit. Like, judge basically, fruit. is this producing a life worth emulating? Absolutely. And most of us do recipes. Yeah. When it comes to time management, recipes. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to uh, how to build a staff, recipes. When it comes to how, how to have a marriage, recipes. When it comes right. to, I mean, you name it, we move to the recipe. So I always tell people, if your watering schedule is all jacked up and the fruit is great, keep a jacked up watering schedule. Mm. If the fruit is no good, be humble enough to Google watering schedule. Yeah. So there is a time and a place, but watering schedules are usually put together by people who had a mess and found a way to fix it. Mm. You know, it's so funny because you see that, I think sometimes you must have this in church world where people come in and they're like, where'd you get those lights and how many lights do you have and all that. I was... Uh, with a podcaster who wanted to see my portable setup, which you patiently endured for 20 minutes while I tried <laughs> to figure out exactly how to use it on the road because I'm the engineer. But like literally he was shocked, you know, we're 10 million downloads in and he's like, you have a $79 microphone? I'm like, yes, and a plastic stand. And, uh, you know, but there's no need to, to, and I think he had dropped fifteen or 20,000 on gear. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't know. His team had or whatever, right? And I'm like, listen, there's, you know, in the studio, I have a really good microphone, but it's a four or $500 microphone. It's not a, a $5,000 microphone because nobody's going to hear the difference. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of that thing, well, if I buy these mics, am I going to get a million downloads? It's like, no. Um, it's, it's really, hopefully, the quality of the interview and then the instruments just capture it. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And in every yeah. area of life. Yeah, because uh, yeah. everybody, uh, there, there was an old thing called the four spiritual laws when I was oh, yeah. young. You know, God loves you as a wonderful plan for your life. And it went through the laws to be a tool to help lead people to Jesus. And uh, my adaptation is this, is uh, I tell people, everybody loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> they know how you ought to use your time, yeah. your money, your energy. They know how you ought to parent. They know how you ought to do marriage. They know how you ought to lead the staff. They know how... And at the end of the day, it's all about the fruit. Yeah. It's all about yeah. the fruit. That's all that matters.
This one, I'm probably never going to forget. I don't need to look at my notes. I've talked to so many leaders about it. But every leader needs co-pilots, not just, I call it, directors. Mm -hmm. Like, that was so helpful. Can you talk about that? Because all of a sudden, my whole leadership life flashed before my eyes. <laughs> well, I think what a lot of times uh, we do in ministry, we we function like, it, to use business terms, a sole proprietorship right? Uh, with valued employees. Uh, well, then all the pressure is upon you. Uh, there's no natural succession. And succession is what we always talk about, but succession is nowhere near as important as transition. Ah. Okay. Succession is what you do at the end of a really long run, but you don't keep a church young by growing old and getting a young pastor to, quote, try to grow young. You've already lost. Mm. It's that whole long 10, 15, 20, 30-year transition. Are you staying young? Right. Because what happens is the freshmen get smaller every year. And they really don't get smaller. You just get older. <laughs> so yeah. when I was 28 years old, I was ready to be a lead pastor. Uh, 15, 20 years later, we're looking at somebody wondering whether they could be an elder or have a role on our staff, and they're 30 years old, and people are saying they're young. Yeah. I go, yeah. they're not young. We're old. <laughs> Correct. And, and so you don't fix that way at the end with succession. You fix that all along with a slow... Uh, uh, frogs in the kettle transition that's constantly allowing young to step in and be a part of it. That's why I often talk about young eagles. Every young bird is not an eagle, but young right. eagles need to fly. Uh, and you do that by making sure they're platformed all along. And that's where that co-pilot thing comes in is uh, I don't believe most churches need a succession plan, but they need a what if the plane goes down plan. Mm. And you're not always going to have it. But, uh, you know, uh, throughout my ministry at North Coast, I always had a self-identified that I'd run by the elder board. If our plane goes down, I'm assuming there's not going to be a pulpit committee. There's not mm. going to be—this person is ready to step in. Right now. And very often there was. And once in a while we have windows, they say, nope, we've outgrown them. Nope. Mm. This. So I never identified that to uh, uh, appointed them that. Uh, until Chris Brown a number of years ago, who obviously was ready to step into that role. And then officially, even though I'm still here and the plane didn't go down, stepped into it a couple of years ago. Uh, but that was the only time about five years before that that I ever self-identified anybody because it was so ridiculously obvious yeah. that he needed to step in this role before even I was totally ready to step away. Okay. But uh, it's it's having... Uh, that that co-pilot that allows you to be able to uh, weather storms, to weather emergencies, to not be the bottleneck that everything. Uh, yeah. Because most of us hire helpers to make the load lighter. Correct. Rather than leaders to make the ministry bigger. Mm. Uh, and yeah, helpers the will make your life easier, but I'd rather get my own lunch, stuff the bulletins myself, and get somebody else on the team uh, that has the ability to have their own following to lead this thing by themselves. If I wasn't here, we're going to do way better. It's like an NBA team. Yeah. Uh, a superstar can't win a championship. Right. Uh, no matter how great the role players are, it takes two or three. Well, I think the thing that hit me, and either you said it this way in our time together last year, or I just remember it this way, but like when you're flying to Europe and you're on a Absolutely. big plane, go ahead and pick it up from there. Like, yeah, well, the, the the bigger the church gets, the more you need more of those. Uh, yeah. That on a small little regional jet, you have a pilot and a steward or stewardess. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you're going cross country, you have a pilot and a co-pilot and the co-pilot is qualified to fly the plane. It's not uh, that they're there as second uh, fiddle and there's a black box of information. They don't know, but once they become a pilot, you give them the black box. Right, right. Okay, That's the sole proprietorship model. The partnership model, think of a law firm, a CPA firm, Mm. marketing firm. Uh, There is a managing partner. They're probably paid more. They have more responsibility. But the other partners don't have information that's withheld from them. Right. This is not just a church problem. This is leadership everywhere. 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 Because in uh, and and so when you have other people who can fly the plane, right, you can go to the bathroom. Exactly. And when you go overseas, there'll be four pilots on that flight. One Mm -hmm. of them is the pilot. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, a lot different than one pilot and a bunch of stewards and stewardesses. As I thought about that, you know, I thought, yeah, that's exactly true. Because, I mean, a lot of listeners, they've flown to Europe. They're on those big planes. you got four pilots. You're like, why four? Well, number one has a heart attack. Number two is perfectly capable doing the entire flight. All the new. Number two disappears for whatever reason. Number three can fly it. And if all three of them are gone, number four can fly the plane. And what hit me was often in leadership— we look for people who can run an area. In other yes. words, well, I can serve meals or I can do takeoff, but I don't know landing. Like that's not really my area. I can do finance, but I can't do operations or I can do operations, but I can't do ministry. And so we assemble our teams that way. And it's only, they're great leaders, but they're only partial leaders. And it hit me like, okay, if you know, if I go down, who can fly the plane, takeoff, landing, everything. And I think the answer for a lot of leaders is, unfortunately, nobody. Yeah. And you don't need 5, 10, 15 of them. No. But you do need more than one. And the larger you get, you need more than two. Mm. Uh, and and it's got a great benefit in every which way. First of all, it'll keep that young eagle around. Yes. Uh, because they actually get to pl- fly the plane, right. take it off. Not someday you can actually land it, you know? Yeah, go sit in that flight simulator right. for a decade. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it gives more health to the congregation because you have different yeah. personalities, temperaments, and voices that are both communicating and leading. But it also will make you a healthier uh, spouse and, mm. and parent. Uh, because we had that, I never uh, panicked uh, when it came time for me to suddenly have to do something. I remember uh, my son got a run in what's called the Penn Relays, uh, a major event, 35, 40,000 people there uh, at the last moment as a sophomore. In uh, the typical kind of setup, I would have said, well, I can't go to that thing because we." it's like, I'm going. Somebody uh. else can fly the plane. I was actually overseas when 9-11 happened. Wow. And I started to make a call home. Uh, and then I turned to my wife and said, no, everything we've said about leadership, they should be able to handle this. And they know my number if they need me, instead of me having to call in and tell them what to preach, how to how to do. So you didn't even call in? I, I call, We call, ended up calling our family, and I never spoke to anybody else on staff until we got back from the trip. Wow. And I heard what they did, and I just shook my head, and they did a lot better job than I would have done Man. from a distance and probably even if I was present. Uh and it's because we had those kind of leaders around. Now, we didn't have a zillion of them, but in particular, hey, we, had, we had three. You don't need a zillion, no, though, No, right? we, had, we had three, and they made wonderful decisions. And um, I, I just can't tell you what that does to lighten your load oh. when you don't feel like every emergency, every last-second shot, you have to take. Yeah. No, Larry, that, that co-pilot thing, 
that will go with me to my grave. It's like, that's such an important principle. And it's just so clarifying because I think so many leaders think they're there. And then you realize, oh, co-pilot. Oh, no, they can't do takeoff and landing and the whole deal. A uh, couple more, okay. if, if you got time. Sure. Uh, I don't know if this you or your friend Tim, but the same mental math that made me depressed. Oh, that was me. <laughs> oh, that was you. Okay. The same mental math that made me depressed was the mental math that would have made me arrogant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I learned that. The, as a youth pastor, I'd had two youth ministries, both of which were the largest in the history of the church. So mm. as a 28-year-old, I felt like I've got this sucker wired. Yeah. I'm ready to go. Uh, and so I come to this new church plant with 70 adults, uh, quickly grew up, got a lot of young kids, which you have when you're a young pastor. Yeah. So maybe 128, I think, were there my first Sunday, counting the nursery. Quickly grew to about 150, I think 149 in four or five weeks, which means 85 adults or something like that. And three years later, it was up one. Wow. Third a person a year for your listeners. <laughs> uh, and and as I would sit on the beach, uh, really going through what I now would call clinical depression. I mean, because <sighs> everything I thought I was and could do is just being torn apart. It hit me that I am all depressed right now because we're not growing. Right. And that's where the same mental math that made me depressed, had the Lord blessed us with tremendous growth at the beginning, would have made me arrogant. Because I was taking too much blame, just as I would have taken too much credit. Yes. Uh, And we don't realize what God was doing. For instance, in my case, uh, we lost 99 people. You know that famous call, Pastor, I love you, which means you're not going to like what you're doing next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're leaving. I love you, but. Yeah, and they're leaving. But God, as I lost that 99, when I looked at real names and faces instead of numbers— uh, we had gained 101 who wanted to do what North Coast does. Right. And so I'm sitting on the beach, depressed, whining to God, and he's blessing the socks off me by digging a foundation and pouring the cement for something far more than I ever believed would be built in this church. Yeah. I, I'm lucky he didn't strike me dead. <laughs> uh, and so I find that same thing now. We take too much blame and too much credit. Uh I mean, Samson had 18 years of a wonderful, successful run, and he was a fraud the whole time. Hmm. Uh, and the Battle of Ai was lost because of one idiot named Aiken. Yeah. Right? And we, we don't always know all the things that are going on in the unseen realm. Young, hungry, and teachable is far more valuable than experience. Yeah. Well, uh, because we have a great staff— yeah. Uh, and because I'm well-connected in a lot of different tribes, I get a lot of people who come to me and say, we're looking for fill-in-the-blank position. Mm-hmm. Do you know anybody? And I always do the same thing. I say, well, send me the job posting. What are you looking for? And then I always send the same text or email. I know you love the staff that we have assembled at North Coast, but the problem is our staff's not qualified for your job posting. Mm. Because on every almost every job posting, the first and second thing are education and experience. Ah, yeah. And when you go education and experience, you get safe. <laughs> when you go gifted, hungry, with some rough edges, you get future. I, I just go, you get to decide. Uh, and, and I think most of us go towards safe, uh, and we forget how risky we were. Uh, I, I, I want to look at people and be willing to have hired me back when I was 28 years old. But the problem is when you get enough miles under your belt to the point I'm at, if I'm in a hiring position, 
All I do is see where they need to grow. Uh, and I don't see uh, where they have grown. And I don't see an upside. One of the things I love about the Eagle's Nest things that I do yeah. is I'm always going home and telling Nancy, you know, we've had a pretty good run. But I'm telling my wife, Nancy, I go, man, they've got a better future than my past. Hmm. Uh, and isn't that the people you want to build your team yeah. with? Yeah. Yeah. So these are young leaders you build into and just trying to encourage them in their leadership. Yeah. And if they're really young leaders, you don't even build into them that much. No, you know? you're, you're, you're there to help them when they need it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times we like people who are dependent upon us. Mm. A real good young eagle often is pushing you away a little bit because they know better. And doggone it, they probably do. <laughs> Larry, what else are you learning right now? <laughs> this is, I mean, this could be like two more hours. Yeah. You know, I, I'm asked that question a lot, and yeah. uh, I'm not sure there's any major aha uh, I think the thing that I'm I'm seeing that people aren't necessarily noticing is is some of the age of rage uh, mm-hmm. and the uh, everybody thinks they're woke on whatever it is they're woke about and our intolerance with people who don't use the right word or see it exactly the way we see it. Uh, boy, in this day and age of echo chambers where we get to choose the news we listen to, the podcasts we listen to, whatever. Uh, we're, we're getting more and more an angry society. Yeah. And I think that's going to impact our, our, our ministry more than most people are realizing because it's not going to go backwards because it's the end result of choice. Hmm. Choice allows me to choose my echo chamber. My echo chamber causes me to think everybody else is stupid. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, because it's so centered around social media and posting and I say things and write things, and preach things I would never say if the person was in front of me. Yeah. And uh, uh, to me, that's the thing I think a lot about. Do you think that's irreversible? Yes, I do. Really? And here's why I think it's irreversible. Yeah. Uh, because those of us who most hate what is done to culture are unwilling to go back to a time frame where you have one AM station and three national news networks. Yeah. Right? I don't want to go back to a lack of choice. Hmm. Uh, and so... I, if those of us who hate it still want options where I get to choose, I, I just think of things like yeah. youth music. There's no youth music anymore. And I'm not, that's not a complaint. It's a reality. Uh, you know, um, everybody's got their, their own little self-made channel. Well, I, I do the same thing when I'm flying. I'm glad I don't any longer have to plug into, uh, listen to whatever three little soundtracks <laughs> yeah. they yeah. have on the plane. Yeah. Okay, I've got eight days, 10 days worth of music. I don't know if I'm going to be, you know, go to my past, Led Zeppelin and the Doors, or I'm going to go to classical music or smooth jazz or background or, or uh, you know, from Foo Fighters to more modern. to well, I don't know where I'm going to go. I love that. Yeah. Well, if I'm not willing to give it up, why do I think anybody else will? Hmm. Do you think, because I, I think about this, I've never talked about it, but... Part of me wonders, like even looking at at politics, one of the trends, I'll write about this in the church, trends and cultural trends for 2020 is the middle is disappearing. Like the middle is just gone. Well, this- the middle hasn't disappeared actually, I don't okay, think. Okay, well, tell me about that. But the middle has lost its voice. There mm. is a big difference. Uh, I saw, and I can't remember, it was Atlantic okay. Monthly, New, I can't remember where I read it, but it was a fascinating article in which they looked at at podcasters, writers, and funding for the far right and far left. Hmm. And they found it was predominantly white on both left and right, 
and it was predominantly wealthy on both left and right, uh, the, the 10% on those two edges. And yet that's what we think of right and left very hmm. strongly. And uh, the, about 70 or 80% are in the middle, but they have no voice because there is no voice in the middle. Ah. And, and what is happening, this is my observation, you can yeah, decide yeah. whether it's crazy or not, but uh, you've noticed uh, we, we, we live in a, a, a giant gossip circle now. Yes. Uh, so uh, my reading plan, I actually do a lot of online stuff quick, just 30,000 foot, seeing what's out there. Uh, and whether it's uh, Fox News, MSNBC, uh, CNN, the uh, Examiner or The Post or uh, whatever it would be, right or left, there's an amazing number of articles that are about the response of people more than they are about what happened. Yes, exactly. The news is now what someone said about the news that what someone totally. said yesterday. Yeah. It's like, that's How not news. How many times have you seen the Twitter universe blew up at? Yeah. Fill in the blank. User, you know, Bob12398 yeah. said. Yeah. It's like. And, and, and so you go and look and I go, there's 1,000 responses and that has now become news mm -hmm. on my news feed from the Washington Post or New York Times or, again, Examiner. It's not right yeah. or left issue. Uh, so what that does is that gives the angry right or left a huge voice. Hmm. I recently got attacked for a decision that I made. Uh, and in reality, man, we had sponsors on something calling, all kinds of things like, hmm. what's up with this? Well, it was 44 or 46 tweets, okay? And it was by a group of about 30 people. <laughs> but when you go, I happen to know who some of them were. You go and look, they've got one, one guy had 450 followers in Australia. Yeah. You know, so you like just to all of people that are listening in right now. I mean, how many of you are writing comments uh, after you read an article online? Mm -hmm. uh, how many of you are, you know, getting onto some Twitter stream or whatever? Most people are doing that or eating Cheetos, living in their mom's basement, they don't have a real job. <laughs> yeah. But in this culture of clickbait, they've been elevated to having power. So that's why I say the middle has disappeared as a voice, but uh -huh. not as a heart. Uh -huh. So you're right. All the influence is on the extremes. On the right or the left, yeah. Yeah. Neither I'm party, look, in, in the States, neither party can put forward a moderate because their own party pushes to the extreme right. Well, that's what I was thinking. You're I thought, totally is, right is this an opportunity for someone in the middle to really ascend and people just kind of go, oh, finally, somebody who thinks with a brain and a heart? Like, Well, it's, it's really hard and, and not being political. Uh, yeah. here, no, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm talking I, about the extremes no, are I, everywhere. The in answer culture. I'm going to give is yeah. I live in California, which is far left. Mm. Uh, but California also gave a series of uh, right Republican governors and senators, all kinds of things. But what happened about 15 years ago is uh, uh, the more extreme uh, right side of the Republican Party uh, uh, kept winning all the primaries. Hmm. And then they put together in California unelectable candidates. And next thing you know, 73 percent. I mean, there's a supermajority and. The yeah. assembly or whatever. And again, I'm not going in the political right or wrong, just the reality. And you'll have more left-leaning states here in, in the United States that have the same thing in reverse. Hmm. Uh, the, the left puts forward such a radical candidate that the place keeps staying red uh, right. over and over. So you are right in the, the middle doesn't have a voice right now. Hmm. 
my pushback was, I think the middle is still where people live. I, I think so too. But I mean, there's no platform. And part of it, part of the, the whole heart behind this podcast is <laughs> I want it to be a place where reasonable people who are not like <laughs> way out there in the 0.1% <laughs> Can come and say, "Okay, this actually helps me." And, yeah, you uh, let them. You let them post and ignore them. The news cycle is your friend. They'll be gone tomorrow. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, anything you see around the corner that most people aren't talking about or talking about enough? I think the impact of uh, the tribalism that we just talked about. Yeah, uh, that we're, we're we're still thinking that one size somehow might reach all. Almost mm. back to the old blended service days. So we're beyond that. You know, blended service, my definition, was a great way to make sure nobody's happy. <laughs> uh, and uh, I just don't think we're realizing at a deep enough emotional level that we all need each other. We still are facing competition in uh, our ch- local churches. Like everybody loves church planning as long as it's overseas or more than 35 minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> but across the street, oh, we don't need that. Yeah, uh, And yes, we do. In this day of tribalism, it's like we've got 35 different language groups. And obviously we do in some of our urban areas, but even suburban areas, it's like we've got all these language groups and we're trying to have an English-speaking only church yeah. uh, or a right-speaking only or a left-speaking only. We need each other more than we ever did. And it's not a combined Easter service. It's not a work day. It's speaking well of one another. It's even helping to fund one another in certain things. It's, it's, it's not just pastors getting together to pray. It's really realizing we're elective Sunday school classes in God's great church in our community. Hmm. Uh, and again, we get it totally when it's overseas, totally when it's more than 35 minutes away. But you let somebody from your church want to plant a church five minutes from you and see what happens, which, mm-hmm. by the way— we're having a staff member do that right now with our blessing and our financial support. Wow. Uh, and he wants to be a teaching pastor. It's not going to be one of our campuses. It's not a North Coast church. But if it had our tattoo on it, we'd be, right? We'd be, oh, God is so good. Look, we're yeah. at another campus five miles away. And well, just because it's got another brand on it, it's the gospel. Wow. So why would we get in his way? But I would say most of us are. So I think that's the thing I'm seeing. We've got to get a board on. Mm. It's not a threat when they plant another church. Uh, Starbucks doesn't care when I quit going to this one and go to another one a mile away. The manager Mm. does, but Starbucks doesn't. And they don't care when I start going to Seattle's Best because they own Seattle's Best too. Right. Could we have that mindset? Because we need it. And we're going to need it more and more as time goes on. Well, Larry, uh, anything else you want to share before we wrap up? I'm done. This is, yeah, I know. This was, this is honestly, uh, this is why I'm so glad we get to do this. If, if you want to look at why we do this podcast and the opportunity to talk about the things that we've just talked about over the last hour plus, it's been so great. If people uh, want to find you online, where would they find you? You're active on Instagram. I follow you there. Yeah, yeah. I, I do the Instagram little thing every now and then. I remember to put something up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, they can do the uh, – I'm just Larry Osborne on, on Twitter and Instagram and all that I got on early enough. Mm. Uh, and, of course, northcoastchurch.com is is where our messages are. Uh, uh, northcoasttraining.org is, is where all the connections are for the churches that we do uh, – coaching, training, workshops, all yeah. that kind of stuff for. 
Yeah. Uh, but we live in a library. Google me and you can find whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and some bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Larry, this is, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Hey, it's a pleasure always. Well, there was an awful lot there. And of course, we have transcripts. You can access them free in the show notes. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 308. You'll find everything there or just Google my name and Larry's name and that'll get you everything. And uh, hey, if you want to help people have a better 2020, um, why don't you look into leading a financial peace university group? You can help people get debt free. You do not need to be debt free yourself. You don't even have to have been through the course. All you need to do is text give hope one word to 33789. That's give hope one word to 33789. And uh, get your free church trends report. It's released by Tony Morgan and the Unstuck Group. Real data, metrics, benchmark. Go to the unstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. Thank you so much to our partners. Uh, they are the ones who make it possible for me to do a lot of these interviews in person, uh, to bring you all this stuff for free, to give you transcripts, all that. And we are looking forward to an even bigger and better 2020. So next week I am back. This uh, this one, man, I got to tell you, this was really close to my heart. Uh, a guy named Terry Wardle is somebody who stepped into my life 15 years ago. He is a professor. He is a Christian counselor. He is a pastor. And man, he came into my life at just the right moment. And um, yeah, we talk about the emotional journey of a leader. And I needed some help in that area a way back. Still need some help with it. Terry was pivotal. And uh, I have this really special, I would even call it sacred conversation with Terry Wardle. So uh, give a listen to an excerpt of what's coming down next time on the podcast. I was probably five years old. My grandfather was a notorious adulterer and he would run around with women all through our town. One night he came to the house. I was there with grandma and he said, Terry, let's go for a ride. I was shocked by it. Grandma was shocked, but off we went. We got in the car. I thought it was just him wanting to be with me. And all of a sudden we turned down a two track that goes out through the woods and it's getting darker and darker. The sun goes down. You can hear the, the, the tree limbs scratching on the side of the car, which sounded like witches screaming. Yeah. All of a sudden, he reaches into the glove box. He pulls out a revolver and tells me to lay on the back seat of the car in the floor. And he gets out. And he's gone for over an hour. I'm a five-year-old kid in the woods, away from the road, hiding on a floor, remembering a gun. He comes back. An hour later, all perspiring, gets in the car, backs out. And on the way back to grandma's house, he said, don't tell anybody, this will be our secret. So guys, if you subscribe, uh, you get that absolutely free. I think you're not going to want to miss it. Plus, we got some amazing guests. We've got Jasmine Starr. Uh, she's just blown up on Instagram. John S. Dickerson, Jordan Rayner, an incredible entrepreneur. A lot of you would know him. His book has sold a lot. Louis Giglio, Francis Chan, Liz Forkin Bohannon. John Mark Comer, Jefferson Bethke, Jenny Allen, Craig Grishel, Lisa Turkhurst, James Emery White, Josh Gagnon, so many more. It's going to be an incredible 2020. I'm so pumped for our lineup and uh, love doing this for you week after week after week. Okay, so the Ask Carrie question, by the way, if you got a question, just do hashtag Ask Carrie. And uh, the question today, I don't have a name, but uh, we're going to ask the question anyway because it's a good one. What is one thing a young leader can do when beginning ministry? Um, I'm going to say, I mean, you've heard all kinds of stuff about that. I'm, I'm going to give you this thing, two things, actually. Number one, 
be humble. You can come into the workplace. And I did this once back when I started in radio. I'd done radio, oh, for about five years and got hired on at a major Toronto radio station and came in. And I guess I must have been strutting or something like that. And I got pulled aside and told that I was alienating people on the team. I don't know what it was, whether it was a bad season of my life, but like I was totally not aware of it. And it mortified me. I changed my attitude and things turned out really well. So just humility is key. Humility is key. And sometimes enthusiasm can be uh, mistaken for arrogance or whatever, but just stay humble. And one of the ways you stay humble is you learn rather than try to teach. So just be open, try to learn from the people around you. And then the second thing I would say, be ridiculously good at what you do. Just get really good at what you do. And of course, one of the ways you become ridiculously good at what you do is by learning and being humble. But it is really when you start to get traction in your work, that's when your bosses take notice of you. That's when your coworkers respect you. And so you really want to develop your craft. That means, you know, showing up early. Uh, it probably means doing everything you can, even via podcasts, online courses, training, that kind of stuff to try to get really good at what you do. And I think if you become ridiculously good at what you do, you command the respect of everyone around you. You combine that with a humble attitude. Boy, I'll tell you. Uh, people line up to hire people like you. I'll tell you that. Um, hey, I've got a just a reminder, last few days for this round of the first round of the High Impact Workplace. We're going to bring it back in the new year, but it's going to be priced very differently. So head on in, get the incredible low price you get right now on a brand new course called the High Impact Workplace. It's about how to attract and keep high capacity leaders. And that closes, uh, well, in a matter of hours, actually. So uh, head on over there. And guys, thank you so much for listening. I so appreciate you. You guys are the best listeners in the world of podcasts. And we're back next time with a fresh episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.